Our Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for speaking to us. And we pray now that You would teach us by Your Spirit. And may we each feel the full force of Your love and grace to us in Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. Jesus was once a boy. A boy. You ever think about that? The one we proclaim, the one the Scriptures identify as Lord, Savior, Messiah, Son of God, Servant, Messenger of the Covenant, Lamb of God. The one the Nicene Creed confesses to be very God of very God. This very one was once a boy. Of the four Gospel writers, only Luke gives us an account of an incident in the boyhood of Jesus. Matthew opens his Gospel by telling us of Jesus' birth and a family sojourn in Egypt and then moves right to his baptism as an adult. Mark skips Jesus' birth entirely and begins his account with the baptism. And John? Well, John begins with the pre-incarnate Christ before telling us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, with the exception of Luke, our Lord's early years, before he began his public ministry, are largely hidden from view. In fact, before our text this morning, we get just one brief verse concerning our Lord's childhood, his very early years. It's Luke chapter 2 and verse 40, and the scripture says this, And the child, which means little child, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. That's it. That's all we have of Jesus' early years until the passage Rebecca just read for us. And let's look at that passage now. The first thing we note in verses 41 to 43 is that Jesus grew up in a household that honored God. A household that honored God, that lived within the boundaries God had set. Luke has already given us some indications of the piety of Joseph and Mary. Back in chapter 1, you might remember this, when the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary, visited Mary, and told her that she had found favor with God and would bear a son whose kingdom would never end, she responded, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I am the servant of the Lord. Servant is a pretty inoffensive translation of the Greek. The actual word means and probably should be translated slave. And many New Testament scholars have pointed this out. The New Testament uses slave constantly and as a metaphor, most often as a metaphor, for total devotion to Christ or God. Total devotion. The Apostle Paul identifies himself as a slave of Christ in the opening verses of Romans and Philippians and Titus. A scriptural metaphor for total devotion. In October 1987, at the annual Global Ministries Institute held at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School just outside of Chicago, the main speaker was Yosef Son, a Romanian pastor who had been arrested and imprisoned twice for preaching the gospel and then exiled in 1981. Prior to being introduced, he expressed his preference, his strong preference, to be introduced simply as a slave of Jesus Christ. There aren't many people, he said, who are willing to introduce me as a slave. They substitute the word servant for slave. But there is an important difference. A servant gives service to someone, but a slave belongs to someone. Behold, I am the slave of the Lord. That's how Mary thought of herself. That's how she understood herself. She self-identified as a slave of God. That's who she was. Total devotion. 
which is characterized by humble submission, unquestioning obedience, and a desire to please the Master. That's Mary. Mary is also a woman of faith who believed the angel Gabriel's message and was commended for it. Again, back in chapter 1 and verse 45, her relative Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, said of and to Mary, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Mary believed. Mary was a woman of faith. And Joseph? Well, he saw to it that Jesus was uh, circumcised on the eighth day and then later presented to the Lord at the temple in Jerusalem, all in accordance with the law of Moses. We're then given a summary statement in chapter 2 and verse 39. And when they, Joseph and Mary, had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. Friends, Mary and Joseph were pious, observant Jews, faithful Jews. Jesus grew up in a household that honored God. And this continues in verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. According to the Old Testament, and you can read about this in Exodus chapters 23 and 34 and Deuteronomy 16, according to the Old Testament, adult men were supposed to attend the three major feasts, the three annual feasts of Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. But in light of the nation's scattering, the custom of first century Judaism was that those who lived a distance from the city journeyed to the temple just once a year. Now, as I mentioned, adult men were required to go, but the journey was not a requirement for women. But for a woman to go, well, that was a sign of great piety. So once again, Luke is underscoring the truth that Joseph and Mary were serious and faithful adherents to the traditional faith. Jesus grew up in a household that honored God. Now the journey from Nazareth to Jerusalem, assuming the travelers bypassed Samaria, which would have been customary, was about 80 miles, 80 miles one way, a journey that would take three or four days. And pilgrims often traveled in caravans for protection, something I think we see here if you look at verse 44. Right? Jesus has stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. Then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. So this wasn't just Joseph and Mary and the kids in the minivan. This was a group trip. There were relatives and acquaintances. And Jesus was 12 years old. So in contemporary terms, perhaps in 6th or 7th grade, that sounds kind of odd, doesn't it? Jesus in sixth grade. But look at verse 43 now. When the feast was ended, when the feast was ended, some pilgrims celebrated Passover and then returned after two days. But the language used here, when the feast was ended, is literally when the days were completed, suggests that Jesus' parents stayed for the entire seven-day period of Passover. Again, an indication of the family's devotion to Jewish custom and the worship of God. And now Luke introduces a family problem. And for any of you who have ever lost a child or are afraid of doing so, listen to this. 43 to 45. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Now, it's quite likely that Mary and Joseph simply assumed that Jesus was among the group heading home. 
that he was with relatives or acquaintances. Whatever the exact situation, it seems that they weren't worried. It was only at the end of the first day of travel, when all would have come together for the night, that they realized there was a problem. And so they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. And then verses 46 and 47. After three days, they find him in, found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. By the time Joseph and Mary find Jesus, he'd been missing for three days. Three days. That's one day out with a caravan, another day back, and one day looking for him. And they discover Jesus in the temple, among the teachers, listening to them, asking questions, and making reply. Now in that day, it was not at all unusual for students to gather at the feet of the rabbis to discuss scripture, theology, the things of God, often in a question and answer discussion format. So not unusual. But for a 12-year-old, perhaps not typical, but not beyond the realm of possibility either. In the Old Testament book of 2 Chronicles in chapter 34, we're told of the reign of King Josiah of Judah. And the scripture says this, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, so maybe he was 15 years old, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David his father. While he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David his father. A young person seeking after God? Yes, indeed. Even at the tender age of 12, the boy Jesus has amazing knowledge of the things of God. In fact, those listening to him are astonished at his understanding. And note, Jesus is not himself teaching at this point. He's not teaching. He will later, but now he's simply listening to the teachers in the temple and asking and answering questions. Now, of course, Jesus is unique, and we'll come to that. But it seems to me we should take careful note of the fact that already early in life, Jesus values the pursuit of comprehending God as he increases in wisdom and in stature. He values the pursuit of comprehending God. And friends, our Lord's approach to knowing God and seeking understanding pictures how we too should do the same. Jesus' approach to knowing God and seeking understanding pictures how we too should do the same. Now we often treat Jesus as unique in all things and in every way because he was and is the Son of God. But surely one reason, not the only reason, but one reason Jesus took on humanity was to show us how to live and walk with God. The Apostle John in his first letter, and this is 1 John 2.6, says this, he who says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. He who says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Commenting on that verse, John Stott, the late Anglican churchman, scholar, and pastor, said this, Christian conformity is to the example of Jesus as well as to his commands. We cannot claim to live in him unless we behave like him. We cannot claim to live in him unless we behave like him. 
After all, the goal, as the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 8.29, is to be conformed to the image of the Son. As another commentator put it, Jesus had to become a man like us in order to live as our example and pattern in life. Our example and pattern in life. Here is the 12-year-old Jesus seeking to know and understand God better. Friends, our young people should be encouraged to do the same. All of us should be encouraged to do the same. Take time to know and understand God better. And now look at verse 47 again. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Where did Jesus get such understanding? Where? Where did he get such understanding? Well, Scripture doesn't tell us, not in so many words. But Jesus, growing up in a home that honored God, was perhaps already well aware of Joshua 1.8 and Psalm 1, both of which call on God's people to delight in the Torah of the Lord, the instruction of the Lord, and to meditate on that instruction day and night. In other words, God's people are to be relentlessly attentive to what God has to say and to delight in it. And broad brush, okay, broad brush, there's a pattern in Scripture. If you've read the prophets, the Old Testament prophetic literature, you know that the prophets themselves read and studied and meditated on the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. We know from Daniel chapter 9 that Daniel himself read and studied the prophet Jeremiah as well as the Pentateuch. We know from the book of Ezra chapter 7 that Ezra the scribe had set his heart to study the Torah of the Lord, the instruction of the Lord. And we certainly know that the biblical writers of the New Testament were steeped in the Old Testament. They quote from it, allude to it, and argue from it so extensively. We've seen that as Keith has taken us through Hebrews. Friends, the pattern is there. God's people immerse themselves in the Scriptures. And remember that when the Scriptures speak, God speaks. When Scripture speaks, God speaks. Our Lord's approach to knowing God and seeking understanding continues a long tradition and is a pattern for us to follow. So at the moment, Jesus is a boy at the instructor's feet. But as the rest of our passage will show, Jesus is already well aware that he's more than a mere student or learner of his ancestral faith. Well, let's continue. You see in verse 48 that Joseph and Mary find Jesus and they too are astonished, amazed to see Jesus talking with the teachers in the temple. And Mary, and I'm guessing not many of us are surprised it was Mary, she quickly takes the lead here and gets right to the point with, I think, a hint of scolding. Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And we can only imagine their son's been missing for three days. Great distress actually describes deep mental pain or trauma. And Mary, speaking for herself and Joseph, wants to know why Jesus has done such a seemingly insensitive thing. And her question prepares for a key teaching about Jesus' identity. It pinpoints the primary issue. Who is Jesus' father? Who is his father? To whom does he owe primary allegiance? Mary's question is quite direct, as is the reply of her 12-year-old son. Why were you looking for me? 
Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? This is Jesus' first statement, his first time speaking in Luke. And note, he accepts no blame here, but instead issues what I think we could characterize as a gentle rebuke. A rebuke which reveals his sense of priority and the necessity of his task. I must be in my Father's house. Must. The word there is often translated, it is necessary. It's used 12 times in Luke's Gospel, and I'll give you just one example. In Luke chapter 24, when Luke recounts uh, Jesus on the road with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, remember what Jesus said to them. This is Luke 24, 25, and 26. Jesus says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Was it not necessary? This is divine necessity. In our passage, it means that Jesus stayed behind in the temple under divine compulsion. He had to be there. He was compelled to be in the temple. It was necessary for him to be there. Now, I think Jesus is making two points. He's at the temple. What's the temple? It's a place of worship, yes. It's also a place of teaching, and uniquely, it's the locus of God's presence. The place of teaching and the locus of God's presence. So two points. First, our Lord's vocation, his career, if you will, must be about instruction on the way of God. And his call, which we see as this gospel unfolds, is to instruct the nation, to teach Israel. He's only 12 years old now, but the day is coming when instructing Israel will be his primary task. So this passage looks ahead to Jesus' public ministry. And it also tells us that Jesus must align himself with God's purpose, the Father's purpose, even if this appears to compromise his relationship with his earthly parents, Joseph and Mary. The parents here need to see that their son Jesus must be about the work of discussing what God desires. Jesus must align himself with his Father's purpose. And friends, the same is true for us. That's the call of discipleship, isn't it? To align ourselves with Jesus, who aligns himself absolutely with God the Father. We are to align ourselves with Jesus and with his kingdom purposes. That's the call of discipleship. So the temple was a place of teaching. But it was also the locus, the place of God's presence. And Jesus here is revealing something to us about sonship. He's operating out of his status as son. And being a son means being in the Father's presence. Spending time with the Father. Communing with the Father. Discussing the things of God. Being a son means being in the Father's presence. I think most of you know my wife Delilah and I have three children. They're all young adults now. In fact, our older son is 30 and married, which we find hard to believe sometimes. But I remember years ago when we were living in the northern suburbs of Chicago, and he was three years old. I was in grad school for the second time, and we had an apartment, and it had a little room in it that I used as a kind of study. It was very small. It was big enough just for a small desk, a chair, and a bookshelf, and that was it. Not much room to move around at all. 
But my three-year-old son, my oldest boy, would, and he knew I had work to do, but he would come into that room and sit quietly, literally at my feet, playing with a truck or a toy of some kind or looking at a picture book. I know it's kind of an inadequate illustration, but he simply wanted to be with me. Being a son means being in the Father's presence, delighting in that relationship. Being a son means being in the Father's presence. Now, as I said, Jesus' pursuit of intimacy with the Father is a product of his sonship with God. But we, too, are sons and daughters of God, children of God, as John's Gospel makes clear. Now, there's certainly a distinction between our sonship, the believer's sonship, which is by adoption, and the unique sonship of Jesus. But nonetheless, this is a picture of how all of us should prioritize our lives before God. You know, sometimes we have to make choices, decisions that others do not understand because God has called us to set priorities that differ from those who go through life without any reference to God. Time spent with the Lord in His presence. So yes, think church, the sacraments, scripture reading and meditation, Bible study, prayer, fellowship, ministry. Time with the Lord will simply not be understood by others with a different set of priorities. But being in the Father's presence, communion with the Father, is part of what it means to be a child of God. It's foundational to our formation as disciples, and it's also our great, great privilege, which the unbelieving world does not and cannot share, being in the Father's presence. Being with God in His presence is also the crux of our faith. You know, remember the, the end game, so to speak. The goal is to be in the Father's presence. You know, in the book of Revelation in chapter 21, when the Apostle John is summing everything up in his great vision, remember he sees a new heaven and a new earth, and he sees the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And he heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. The end of all things is to be with God in the Father's presence. David wrote of this briefly in Psalm 16 and verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Human happiness consists in being with God, enjoying the blessings of His presence. And friends, being with the Lord, time spent with Him in His presence now, is a foretaste of the life to come when we will be in His presence for all eternity. Fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. Take time to know and understand God better. Take time to be in His presence. Now note verse 50. And they, Mary and Joseph, did not understand the saying that He spoke to them. Why didn't they understand? Why didn't they know Jesus had to be in His Father's house? After all, Mary had had the benefit of the angel Gabriel's announcement to her in Luke chapter 1. Remember this? The angel says to her, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call His name Jesus. 
He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary had the benefit of that announcement. She also had the testimony of Elizabeth, who said to her, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Mary and Joseph also had the testimony of the shepherds in chapter 2. Remember when the angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds and said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And the shepherds race over to Bethlehem, and they find Mary and Joseph and the baby in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. Mary and Joseph heard this, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. They also had the blessing of Simeon when they presented Jesus to the Lord at the temple, again in Luke 2. And Simeon came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother, Joseph and Mary, marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Finally, there was the testimony of Anna and then of Jesus himself. Mary and Joseph had heard a great deal, and yet they did not understand. Are we meant to be surprised by this? Should we be surprised? Is their failure to understand blameworthy? I think the answer to those questions is all no. Mary and Joseph's failure to understand is actually a pretty typical response to Jesus that we see particularly in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. These gospels, somewhat in contrast to John, take a kind of earth-to-heaven viewpoint of Jesus. And in these gospels, we read along and watch as it slowly dawns on people that this Jesus is no ordinary man. Remember when he calms the storm at sea at the end of Mark 4 and the disciples react with fear saying, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They didn't understand. Or recall John the Baptist's question to Jesus in Matthew 11. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? He was baffled. The truth is most of us come to faith in Jesus and to a deeper understanding of him slowly, the way pretty much everyone comes in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And that's the case for Mary and Joseph as well. It's the way it often works for those we're trying to reach with the good news. It takes time. For Luke, uncertainty about Jesus, lack of clarity about him, is resolved through a close study of his life and ministry. That's what Luke is telling us in the opening verses of his gospel. Remember these words. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, 
to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Uncertainty is resolved through a close study of Jesus' life and ministry. Well, what finally are we to make of all this? What's our response? Remember Mary, right? After she heard the words of the shepherds, it says, Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. It seems to me that the pondering that Mary does in chapter 2 and again in verse 51 of our text is a call for us to do the same. Mary, I think, is a picture of what the faithful should do when we encounter truths about Jesus. We consider these truths, we ponder them, we mull them over, we meditate on them, we pray over them. After all, we all have to wrestle with Jesus' identity and decide exactly who He is. Friends, this year, take time to consider Jesus. Take time to get to know Him better. Take time to be in His presence. Amen.